Welcome to The Bee Podcast. The mission of The Bee is to create an inspiring platform for all women of every age group to have meaningful conversations with the intent to genuinely understand each other's journey, to listen to stories similar and different than our own, engage in each other's triumphs and failures, hear and validate one another on the separate unique journeys we have traveled, the loss we have endured, the joy we have encountered, and the reason behind the lessons we have learned. Bees symbolize community, personal growth, and power. And that is what we aim to do here. Create community, foster growth, and empower women. I'm Cami Milliken, and this is the Bee Podcast. Hey, Bee Podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. Erica Siren is our guest today, and she is just a beautiful person inside and out. Today, we get the chance to sit down with her and talk about her experience as a mom of a child with autism. Listen in today as she shares her life, the ins and outs, the struggles and victories of raising her incredible son, Ryder. Hi, Erica. I'm so glad that you are here and we are doing this interview. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Can you just start by telling us a little of who you are, where you're from, what you do? Yeah, so um, my husband and I grew up in Hedrick and that's currently where we live. Um, We live here with our three boys. We have Noah, Ryder, and Maddox. Um, They're nine, six, and four. Um, I am a nurse at the um, hospital in Oskaloosa. Um, My husband is a police officer for the city of Ottumwa and then we also farm. Yeah, that's that's amazing, all of the things that you're doing. So with the schedule that your husband has and as a nurse, I know that scheduling can be kind of hairy. How, how does that work with your family? Yeah. I mean, sometimes not well, but it, it works. I mean, it's just a constant decision that you have to make that you have to make it work and life goes on and just keep pushing. That's awesome. Yeah. So cool. So you are from Hedrick. Are you and your husband high school sweethearts? I have to ask. We are. Yeah. (laughs) We started dating um, when I was almost 14. Yep. We were both about 14 when we started dating. So eighth grade, dated all throughout high school, of course. And um, we got married when we were 20. Yeah. And so we've been married 10 and a half years now. That's so cool. I love stories like that. Because, you know, when you're in high school, and I'm certain while you were in high school, you had lots of people saying like, hey, you know, I mean, maybe find someone else. It's not going to work. Like you, people don't get married from high school anymore. It's not what year it is. And so I think that's cool. Yeah. So you met your husband in school. Mm-hmm. So where where were you married? Did you get married locally? Yeah, we got married um, at the Bridgeview Center in Ottumwa, um in 2010. What did the discussion of starting a family look like? Did you want to do that right away? Was that something you wanted to wait on? We wanted to wait a little bit. Um, I was, Michael was already working for the police department um, and I was in nursing school at the time. And so basically what we wanted is that if we had a child, it wouldn't interfere with my schooling essentially. So (laughs) we ended up getting pregnant Uh, when I had a year left of school. So I had Noah in February of 2012, and I still had three more months of school. So 
it was <laughs> kind of all a blur until school was over, but we made it. <laughs> but you did it. Obviously, yeah. you have done it and you've done well. That's awesome. Yeah. So then what um, what were your pregnancies like? You've had three babies. Were did or Are you one of those moms that like enjoyed being pregnant? No, no I hated being Same. pregnant. I <laughs> am miserable and I feel like I'm probably miserable to be around when I'm pregnant because I just <laughs> hate life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all, all of my pregnancies were different. My first one, thank goodness, was super easy. No sickness, no anything, no pain of any sort. He was born on his due date. Thank goodness. Oh my gosh. I was you are that 3%. I know. Yeah. But yeah, thank goodness. Cause I was in school. And so it, we had planned that that was the day he was going to come and sure enough he did And with Ryder. So my second son, we had trouble getting pregnant with him. Um, it took us over about over a year, I would say. Yeah. Over a year. And then with him, I was kind of sick. I felt like I was always in pain with him. And then the delivery with him was pretty complicated. I had severe preeclampsia. So my blood pressure was super high. And so they had to get him out. So I was just induced a week early. And and then with Maddox, I was sick every day, every single day. Oh my gosh. Multiple times a day. I only gained eight pounds with him because I was so sick. Also different. Isn't that incredible? The way it that is. your body yeah. reacts to every pregnancy so differently. Yes. Incredible. And so preeclampsia with your second child with Ryder, uh-huh. um, you'd never experienced that before. Nope. So, and then induction, were you induced with Maddox? Um, I was for a different reason. <laughs> I sure. was induced three yeah. weeks early for essentially my liver was putting off enzymes that could have hurt the pregnancy. And so they had to take them out three weeks early to, otherwise you raise the risk of having a stillborn baby. With Ryder, he was really sick when he was born and he was in the NICU for a few days. Erica, if you don't mind me asking, what happened at Ryder's birth? Um, so I think I mentioned already that I had severe preeclampsia with Ryder. Um, and so I had to be induced and after the the birth itself was fairly unremarkable, pretty, pretty normal. It was when he was about three hours old. I remember it was about 11 o'clock at night. It was super dark in our room. And I just remember, actually, I should back up because of my preeclampsia, I was on a ton of medication. Um, I couldn't stop throwing up my blood pressure was through the roof. So I was on all these medications and all of them pretty well made me super drowsy, um, really almost kind of incoherent for the most part. But I remember it was about 11 o'clock at night, right? It was about three hours old. And I just remember thinking to myself, you know, as my husband's asleep in the chair next, next to me, of course, I just remember thinking, you know, when my first one was born, when he came out, he was starving. He wanted to eat like right that second. I swear he took his first breath and then wanted to eat. And then when Ryder came out, um, he just had no, no interest in eating or anything, which, you know, at first I'm like, okay, whatever, give it some time. And then when he was three hours old, I just kind of remember thinking like, okay, you know, when do I worry that, you know, his blood sugar could drop? And so I remember, even though I was on strict orders to 
not get up, not move. I had IVs all over and monitors all over, even a full catheter and, you know, told, you know, don't leave your bed. I'm like, well, you know, I just don't feel right about this. And so I remember walking across the room and again, my meds were kind of making me very, very foggy. And I remember thinking like, man, he doesn't look quite right. And I picked him up, went back to my bed. Even then I'm like, cut you know, is it just because it's so dark in here or, um, what's going, you know, what's going on, but he just didn't, his color looked bad. And at that moment, you know, a nurse comes like running in ready to yell at me. Like, why'd you get out of your bed? Like I told you not to. And then takes one look at Ryder. He turns on the light. He's blue, completely blue. I just remember her taking him literally running out of the room, screaming, And then it was probably another hour or so I give or take, you know, again, I was super foggy. Don't really have a concept of time. Um, They came back and said that his oxygen saturation was in like the sixties and he was breathing extremely fast um, about over a hundred times a minute. So for a newborn, that's almost double. Um, and so he had something that they call transient tachypnea of the newborn, um, which they didn't know quite at first. At first, there were a lot of things kind of floating around. They thought maybe he has a bad heart condition. Um, you know, something just wasn't quite right. Um, I remember when um, the transport team from Blanks came down, the, they were very... Um, you know, they talked a lot about, you know, his presentation. They were worried he had a, a heart condition. But once they got him up to Blanks in Des Moines and he was in the NICU, they did determine that he had um, transient tachypnea of the newborn, which happens in about 1% of term babies. Um, so Ryder <laughs> drew that card and became that 1%. He was in the NICU for about three or four days. I, I think I, I had to stay back in Ottumwa because of my preeclampsia um, rider left in the ambulance without me. We were separated a couple of days before I could safely leave the hospital to go up to stay with him. Basically what it is, is that he had an extra amount of fluid on his lungs that he couldn't get off. And so that caused the respiratory distress. And yeah, so after a few days of just oxygen and monitoring, we were able to go home. How was it not being with him during that time that you were also recovering? It was awful. It was, (laughs) I remember texting my best friend and it like, I don't know why it just really sets with me. I remember texting her. I'm like, this is the worst day of my life. I'm sitting in a hospital um, without my husband, without my baby, not knowing if he's sick, not know, or obviously he was sick, but not knowing if he's going to live. And if, cause this whole time I'm thinking to myself, like, do I stay and take care of me or do I sign, sign myself out against medical advice and drive up there anyways? Like, what do I, what, what does a mother do? And so my doctor just like firmly said, like, you are not safe to leave. Like you, this, you are very sick. You cannot leave. And so I just kind of trusted that. And, um, but yeah, it was awful. I mean, just sitting there alone, it was, it was pretty awful. I mean, my parents brought my, 
oldest, who was two at the time, I remember he came to see me, but I was just so sick to really even sick and sad to really, you know, acknowledge him. It it seemed like, thankfully, I mean, I worked at a Tumor Regional at the time. And so I had friends from the ER that came up to visit me to keep me company and at least hug me. I remember, you know, on one of my, the blood pressure meds, the magnesium, it made, just made me so like, almost so I couldn't even lift my arms. I remember one of my good friends came up and even brushed my hair for me because I couldn't even, I was just too sick to even do that. But yeah, I was, it was awful. <laughs> Something I definitely would not wish upon anybody. And so when you got up there, I mean, mm-hmm. how, how did you feel once you were there with him? Yeah, I mean, it was, I don't know. I just felt just very surreal. I mean, walking in there to see my newborn. And it was almost as if I was meeting him for the first time. You know, I only had him for three hours you know, and again, I was on those meds that made me so foggy, but it was just such a blur. And so it was just kind of weird. I felt like I was, like I said, meeting him for the first time when I got up there. So how long was he in the hospital? Once I got up there, I think another two, two nights, I think. What was the medical advice that the, that the staff gave you then as you went home? I mean, that would have been terrifying to almost lose your baby in one night. And then, you know, like, couple days later. Yeah. Like go go home. home. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I mean, it was just, of course, you know, watch them and bring them back if anything's concerning. And I mean, luckily it, it went fine. And once we were home, we felt good about it and, and didn't worry too much. So this is your second born child and you have a frame of reference for what, Mm -hmm. you know, nights are supposed to look like with your newborn. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've heard mom say, and I've even felt myself like I can't sleep because I'm not sure if my baby's breathing. So, mm-hmm. you know, you check the, you check the crib or you check the bassinet multiple times and baby's still good. Were you hyper vigilant about checking on him at night? Yeah. Yeah, I was. I mean, I definitely, I, I didn't sleep a lot um, for the first, I don't know, probably I mean, several months for sure. Even, even if he was sleeping, like I couldn't sleep because I felt like I needed to watch him. But I mean, it's even with my oldest or my other kids too, it was the same. They didn't sleep very well. And so, you know, you know that with a newborn, you're not going to sleep very much, but with him, it was different just because I was so thankful that he was alive. It's like, I didn't, I didn't care. You know, I never got like upset. Um, you know, that whole, I'm so tired. I can't function. I'm going to cry. Like I never got sad. And I just, I even remember like my husband, I don't know, Friday was probably two months old. I was still on maternity leave. And he just looked at me and just said like, you know, I think you are the happiest you have ever been. And, you know, at that point we'd been married four and a half years. He just kept saying how happy I seemed. And it's just like, well, you know, when you almost lost a baby and he's here and he's well, like, it's all you really have to be happy about and thankful for. Yeah. It gives you some serious perspective on, on happiness, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, okay. You're home and things are going well. And you seem to be like your husband said, you know, just super thankful and happy that your baby is, 
you know, with you. So was it smooth sailing from there? Ryder was kind of a sickly Sam for a baby. So he was born in May. And then by the time, you know, cold and flu season came around October ish, he seemed to be sick pretty well all the time with something upper respiratory or ear infection. And then in December of 2014, right before Christmas, it was December 22nd. Writer had been pretty ill a couple days prior. He was on Neb treatments every four to six hours around the clock continuous because he just had this terrible, terrible cough. And I remember, yeah, it was December 22nd and we were at home. I was at home with um, Ryder and Noah and Noah was still two at the time. I was just kind of in the middle of actually mixing together sugar cookies for Christmas. And all of a sudden I hear the most God awful noise and it's Ryder struggling to breathe. And I turn out, luckily he was only a few feet from me in like a little bassinet type thing. Yeah, he, I just looked at him and he was struggling, struggling to breathe. And so, you know, instantly I wasn't, I mean, I was concerned, but not like an emergent type of concern. I'm like, okay, he just needs a neb treatment. So I, I threw that on him real quick um, for children and infants. It's, it's a mask. So I just threw the mask on him and about a minute or two later, all of a sudden he stops looking at me. He will not open his eyes. He won't respond to me. I tried, you know, kind of stimulating pain to see if he would cry and nothing. And then that's when it hit me like, oh my God, he's something is extremely wrong. And, and I was an ER nurse at the time in Ottumwa and we lived in Ottumwa at the time. And I remember I must have instantly kind of went into shock because looking back on it, it's not what a normal person would have done. Obviously in that moment, like I knew if my child didn't get help right away, he was going to die. But in my mind, I, I, it's like, I knew I should have called 911, but I just couldn't bring myself to my husband who, you know, is a cop with a Tumla police department. He was working at the time. And all I could think about as my son is in front of me dying, all I could think about is that I cannot have my husband hear over his radio an unresponsive baby at his own address. I just couldn't have that for my husband for some reason. I just couldn't. And so I threw both the boys in the, in my car and, um, just went as fast as I could to the hospital. I, I don't even think I buckled, buckled them in. Honestly, I remember Ryder was in his infant carrier and I just kept telling Noah in the back again, Noah's two years old. And again, like, I mean, some sort of shock. I kept asking Noah, I'm like, is he breathing? Is he breathing? Is he breathing? And again, you know, I'm relying on my two-year-old to tell me the status of his little brother. And then when we get to the hospital, I, you know, we were brought back pretty much right away. Again, you know, that's where I work. So the staff, of course, was like, oh, Erica's here. Something must really be wrong. The doctor came in right away and instantly assessed him and realized that she could not hear any breath sounds on his left side of his lung. And so uh, minutes later, we got a chest x-ray 
And I went with her to look at it. And I just remember her looking at me and telling me, Erica, I'm going to have to intubate your child, which means essentially put him on a breathing machine or a ventilator. And I just kind of remember just dropping to like, just dropping to my knees. Like I was just too weak to even, to even stand up. And I guess I should back up and say, you know, on the way to the emergency room, I called my husband and just said, Hey, I'm taking Ryder to the emergency room. Just come when you can. That's pretty much all I said. And apparently I didn't sound too concerned because Michael even stopped and got launched before he came to the emergency room because he said, I just, he said, I sounded normal. Yeah. I just remember Michael walking in and I'm can hardly even stand up and and then it took Ryder a long time they couldn't get an IV on Ryder and so to intubate somebody you need to be able to sedate them um, to relax them so that um, to help the you know the tube go down um, and so that they they aren't pulling out the tube they tried for a, a really long time to get an IV site and for those of you not familiar with any medical um, terminology or medical resources, I guess. When we can't find an IV site, a next uh, step, especially in an emergent situation, would be to um, perform an IO, which essentially is drilling an IV needle into your bone. And so I had to watch that be done on Ryder twice, and that still didn't work. And so after that failed, uh, thankfully, my boss at the time was able to get an IV into his scalp so that um, he could be sedated and then intubated. And then it would be another three days or so before I would see Ryder's eyes again. Um, He was... supposed to be um, flown out, but unfortunately the weather didn't cooperate that day. And uh, so an ambulance team from Des Moines came down to transfer him um, to Blanks. And he was diagnosed with a congenital diaphragmatic hernia, which means that essentially a hole ruptured in his diaphragm that caused all of his abdominal contents to crush his left lung. And, um, and essentially push his lung and his heart all the way over to the right side of his body. <laughs> Thankfully, it was easily repaired with um, an emergency surgery. Um, the surgery went well, no problems at all. So that was done that same day. And then it was another two, two days, I believe, before they took the breathing tube out and let him wake up. So yeah, it was the day before Christmas that he was extubated, as they call it. But when he was up there after the surgery, he had to have a chest tube in. So basically a big hose stuck in his left lung so that all of that fluid and any extra blood um, could drain off so it could reinflate properly and restore normal respiratory function. But yeah, we were up there um, for Christmas that year and we came home the day after Christmas actually. But yeah, (laughs) that by far, I guess, you know, I had mentioned that 
I texted my friend the day he was born saying that was the worst day of my life, but I was wrong. <laughs> that instance where he almost died at home was definitely the worst day of my life. But you're living in a constant state of not knowing. So these, these diagnoses that Ryder has, mm-hmm. could they resurface? So with his um, diaphragm, it's a very, very low percentage that it could rupture again. Um, the, the hernia, the diaphragmatic hernia is actually something congenital. And so he was actually born with it, but it wasn't discovered until it did indeed rupture. Generally, those things are found on ultrasounds when the mom is pregnant with the child. And so sometimes they'll do surgery when the mom is still pregnant, or they'll know that they have to do surgery immediately when the baby is born. And it just wasn't ever detected with Ryder. I'm assuming because it wasn't, just wasn't detected because it wasn't nearly as bad and until it obviously ruptured, but, but it actually goes along with his, um, chromosome deletion, um, syndrome. It's, um, along with autism that's part of his deletion the diaphragmatic hernia is also a symptom of that and so so that's just something we know now that we didn't just didn't know then so your firstborn and your third their labor and delivery was pretty pretty normal yeah with the third child um since Ryder had the diaphragmatic hernia, they knew to do a um, special ultrasound to basically double check that he didn't, that my third didn't have the diaphragmatic hernia as well. Thankfully he did not. Yeah. I mean, fairly normal labor and delivery for, for them. But yeah, the other two came out perfectly healthy. What did having your first child do to you? How did it change you? Makes you an anxious mess, I think. Um, and, and so <laughs> were you a nervous sweater? Like, like, did you go into like stores and were you like completely like nervous and anxiety ridden yes. every time you had to yeah. go? And I think because I was so young, I mean, I was 22 when I had him and I mean, it's not like super young, but I mean, it still is. And so I felt like, yeah. I don't know. I, and, it, and there's a reason I felt like it, but I felt like everyone's judging you because you're a young new mom and totally like unreasonable thoughts. Like nobody cares what you're actually doing, but um, <laughs> yeah, I just, mm-hmm. I felt a lot of anxiety and a lot of it too could have been because I was in school still, but yeah, as time goes on, you learn to care less what people think, or you just get in your own routine of what works and what doesn't and life goes sure. on. Yeah. So then how did it change the dynamic of your marriage? Was it, I mean, I know parenting is really difficult to do, um, but how did it change your dynamics? I mean, it definitely made it better. Um, I mean, seeing your husband hold your newborns is something that you wish you could see every day. You know, I think it definitely makes communication a lot more important. I mean, it didn't, I mean, our marriage got stronger, but it didn't necessarily feel like it changed. I mean, we always knew that we wanted kids. And so we were just, I don't know, just so ready, I think. Well, and having that relationship 
you know, have having been high school sweethearts and yeah. knowing each other, you know, being friends and knowing each other before everything. And yeah, it really mm-hmm. does kind of help you want to get things rolling a little quicker than you might have given if you met somebody, you know. Right. Later yeah. By the time Noah was born, we had been together over eight years. So yeah. 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 I love that. How did having children change the way that you viewed yourself? It definitely, like, I feel like I'm a much more assertive person because you're constantly advocating for your kids. You're constantly, like, having to, you know, do what's best for them. And, yeah, I feel like I'm a much more assertive. And Do you feel like you really started to advocate with Ryder and maybe maybe more so than you would have with your firstborn? Oh, absolutely. I mean there's hardly a day where I don't have to advocate for writer at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Ever since, gosh, I mean, he had, a, he had a few medical problems when he was a baby. And so um, it's kind of where all of that took off of the excessive assertiveness, I guess, but. Well, and your experience with being a nurse as well really, really is helpful um, mm-hmm. as far as medical care. So when, after having Ryder, when did you believe things were different with him? When he was probably two and a half, I would say. Right. Well, yeah, somewhere between two and two and a half because he wasn't talking. And even up until then, his milestones had been um, pretty delayed, not extremely. I mean, it's hard not to compare your kids, I guess, but you yeah. know, my first one started walking when he was 11 months or give or take and Ryder didn't walk until he was 15 or 16. And, but it's also easy to kind of like wash away those feelings too. Like, Oh, you know, all kids are different. Um, he's not talking because Noah talks for him. You know, that's not uncommon child, yeah. at all that the oldest child right. talks for the younger child. Um, and, and we would hear that from people all the time that would, you know, try to reassure me like, oh, that's normal. Like, don't worry about it. Forget about it. Yeah. And then, yeah, when he was, I don't know, probably between a year and 18 months, he did say some words and I really hadn't noticed it until I looked back on old videos that he was talking then. And then somewhere along the way, he lost those words. But, you know, in between that time, I'd had a third child when Ryder was, he wasn't quite two yet when Maddox was born. And so I had four kids, three, three, and or sorry, three kids, four and under, back that up there. Um, and so, I don't know, it was just kind of, Maddox was <laughs> one of those kids that just cried all the time. And so he took all of your attention. And so it was kind of hard to focus on the other two kids who were somewhat self-sufficient. <laughs> yeah. And so somehow I kind of lost track that Ryder all of a sudden wasn't talking. And that's yeah. not uncommon with kids with autism that they regress like that. But okay. yeah, so he was about two and a half and he again, wasn't talking. He had got, we took him to the ENT um, thinking is he, he constantly had new infections all the time. Um, when we took him to the ENT, they decided that he was like 
pretty much completely deaf from all of the um, fluid in his ears, which could be fixed with tubes. So he couldn't hear at all until he got tubes in. Oh my goodness. And so instantly we're like, oh, well, that's easy. He's not talking because he can't hear us. Well, and then time goes by and he's still not talking, even though he can hear. And then, then yeah, just kind of all snowballed from there from about the time he was two and a half to, you know, we got services rolling and gotten diagnosed and all of that. So then what were the conversations that you had with your husband around that concern, you know, after the tubes? Yeah. So I remember knowing, I knew months before I even brought it up to my husband that I thought Ryder had autism. Um, I don't know. I just had a hard time talking about it because once you say it out loud, it's like, real you know it's not something you just can't unsay it you can't and I try to convince myself out of it I guess like oh he's not you know like it's something else or whatever and I just remember yeah it, it had been several months where I'm like I am positive writer has autism has autism I remember we had taken a family trip to Chicago we went to an indoor water park and um, just on the way home, I like out of the blue, I just blurted it out. I'm like, oh, by the way, I think Ryder has autism. She made for a very long <laughs> drive home, but luckily, I mean, Michael took my concerns seriously and it took him like a day or two to really let it sink in. I think that he, you know, thought I was right and we need to kind of get the ball rolling on things. Do you think Michael was also having the same thoughts but both of you were just not wanting to say it because like you said it does make it final truthfully you know autism was just kind of one of those things it's like you know it exists but you don't really know the ins and outs of it and so before he was diagnosed you just neither of us really knew a whole lot about it yes we both through our jobs taken care of or dealt with autistic kids and every one of those kids are completely different. Um, you know, it's a spectrum. And so they don't really fit, you know, a cookie cutter image. And so I don't really think he had ever considered it. It was just, he wasn't talking. That was the problem. Not mm-hmm. he has autism and that's mm-hmm. what's causing the apraxia, which was, you know, not speaking. So, so let's talk about diagnosis. Mm-hmm. What, um, what does the process of diagnosing a child on the spectrum look like? How, what were your first steps? What did you do? Where did you go? Yeah, so it's a very lengthy process. There's very limited amount of doctors in the state, really, that can formally diagnose a child with autism. And so you need referrals to these places. Um, so we had to start with our primary care provider who... Um, actually referred us to the child health specialty clinic in one the nurse practitioner there did a full evaluation on him and decided that yes he needs to go on for further evaluation to see you know if he does indeed have autism and so we were put on I remember we met with that nurse practitioner in April of 2017 um and then we were on like a year and a half waiting list for both blanks and iowa city we wanted to be on both just to see which one would come up first but (laughs) being the 
kind of crazy person I am sometimes, I would constantly call um, the doctor's office and be like, hey, are there any cancellations today? Like, can we be put on a cancellation list? Because when you think that something's wrong with your child, like you don't want to wait. You, you know, once that thought is in your head, like you want to know like right then. So life's just not the same until, until you know. So yeah, they surprisingly had a cancellation the first of June. So we really only had to wait two months to get the formal diagnosis as opposed to a year and a half. Um, but yeah, there's a um, specialized pediatrician that did his diagnosis where we just go in for a lengthy evaluation. He asks a bunch of asks us a bunch of questions, um, evaluates, he evaluated writer. Um, yeah, it was a very long, <laughs> very long morning to say the least when he did get diagnosed. Uh, yeah. And so, so what were your thoughts during this? I mean, so, you know, even though, even though I knew, I knew that writer had autism, even before going to the appointment, it was like, you know, every question he's asking us, it's like, you don't want to lie, but you also, I really thought about my answers because in the end, I didn't want him to have autism. And so it's like, well, if I tell him this, it's going to be like, oh, one point autism as opposed to not. And so it was really hard to tell the truth, knowing what that truth would lead to, I guess. Did you feel like it was a, um, like it reflected on you as a mother? Yeah. Um, at first I did. Um, sometimes I felt like, you know, how didn't, how didn't I notice earlier? What did I miss? What did I do? Like I said, even though I knew it, I knew going into the appointment that he had autism, but hearing the doctor, I guess, say it out loud is what I wasn't yeah. ready for. So that would have been really hard because there are those, all of those thoughts, you know, mm -hmm. swimming around in your head and all of that doubt and negative self-talk for sure. So then how did Ryder deal with the, the assessment? He was fine. I mean, we were really just kind of in a large room and Ryder just pressed all the buttons that he could find. And he just, he did he was, obviously not really paying attention to what was going on or he was he had just turned three when he got diagnosed so at three he really didn't quite have a clue what was going on that day I guess what was your initial reaction to understanding how to best care for him both you and your husband um it's a lot to take in and so yeah essentially when he was the day he was diagnosed we were sent home with a bunch of information on all of these different therapies that can help and what would be beneficial one major thing is for for autism is ABA therapy which unfortunately here in rural Iowa the um access to that is pretty it's non-existent it does, like we would have to essentially drive him to des moines every day for years um to and, get... okay so what is that can you tell me what that is yeah so it's really kind of hard to explain essentially it helps with their behaviors because a lot of autistic children you know they display violent behaviors um and it just helps them learn 
different skills as they progress and age. Like kind of how to self-regulate or understand the triggers, kind of help Mm -hmm. themselves cope through that? Yeah. 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 It's pretty intense. It would be like eight hours a day, five days a week. So um, essentially one of us would have had to quit our jobs and drive him there every day for years. Um, So we tried hard to figure out a way to make that work, which one of us, what I could have easily quit my job. That wasn't the issue. Um, But it's how do you leave your other two children every day for years? Yeah. So there's another element and another, you know, a deeper, deeper element to, to that. And so we just tried to focus on what our family could manage and what we could give him the best of the resources that are available here. And so he, he does a lot of speech therapy. So for years up until COVID hit last year, so from age like two and a half until age six, essentially, he would get speech therapy through the AEA, which he would get that at school um, twice a week. And then I would take him private to private um, therapy sessions twice a week in a tumble at the hospital. So we'd go every Monday and Friday. Um, And then at school recently, they've added in some occupational therapy just to help us on fine motor skills, which he, he does well at. But yeah, speech was our main focus. When he was diagnosed, he had zero ways to communicate. It was yeah, pretty much just pointing. And that didn't really give us much to work with at all. Right, especially, you know, when he's sick, that is a whole different ballgame, yeah. not knowing. Yeah, and even, even still when he's sick, like sometimes he'll just start crying. And so it's hard to know. Is he in pain? What hurts? Um, and yeah, that's that's kind of our hardest issue is knowing if and when he's in pain. The way in which you care for him did change as far as, you know, making those appointments and getting him the, the help that he needed in those times. Uh, how did things change at home for you? Did anything change? I feel like after he was first diagnosed, everything's just kind of a blur. But, but yeah, going to constant appointments. So yeah, between speech therapy twice a week, we, there was just constant other appointments. Like he sees neurology because he has seizures. We now see an endocrinologist. We see an ear, nose and throat doctor. I feel like I'm missing one or two, (laughs) but yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just constant appointments. And so, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a lot of added stress at home and so it's just learning how to cope and deal with that and what's a healthy way to cope with it and what's not and then just getting our other two kids like used to constantly having appointments because I mean I would have to drag them along too so it would you know my husband he he works so hard for us and I'm so grateful um so that means that you know a lot of that responsibility is on me and so you know, it's always me taking to taking him to appointments and the other children. And so, yeah, it would be nothing for me to have to drag all three kids, you know, to all of these appointments and just be get back to the car and just be absolutely exhausted. Right. Speech therapy for him, 
sometimes sometimes kind of turns into a wrestling match. I mean, he doesn't really like sometimes when he's done with things, he gets kind of not necessarily violent, but he would kind of nudge you or kick you. Um, and so sometimes, yeah, it would just be a 45 minute wrestling match if he didn't want to participate. And so that would definitely leave you exhausted. But can we talk about your boys, your, oh, yeah. your, your oldest and your youngest? So, yeah. So yes, Noah's older. Maddox is younger than Ryder and they're both super protective of him. They are always looking out for him. They, and Noah, my nine-year-old, he, he really is a saint. You know, if I'm in the shower or whatever, and you know, my husband's not home, Noah will try to, you know, help him out or, I even have pictures of the boys um, putting a pull up on Ryder um, when it's time to go to bed without me even asking, without me. And they don't do that every night. They, I mean, I do it 99% of the time, but um, <laughs> I, I just remember one time I was carrying up a load of laundry and I see the four-year-old putting on Ryder's pull up for the night. So they, they take care of them really well. Noah always reports back to me every day about how Ryder was on the bus and, um, and yeah, they, it's kind of funny sometimes when we're somewhere and the boys are playing and Noah always has to announce to everyone like, oh, this is my brother Ryder. He has autism. So he may not talk to you. I love that. That's Mm -hmm. so sweet and considerate of his brother, you know, that, you know, has he had any um, negative interactions with kids because they don't understand how to best be his friend? No, I don't think so. And actually, I mean, whenever we are out and about and writer, one of writer's classmates sees him, they'll always come up and say hi and I mean, Ryder never says hi back. They're working on that at school a lot. They want him to start greeting people. And now he is talking. He started talking when he was about five, right around his fifth birthday. He pretty much went from zero words. And now he will speak in some sentences. And a lot of the time, it's not super clear unless you're around him all the time and know what he's saying. But yeah, my my boys are great. My oldest, he even has a you know, sometimes he overhears, you know, difficult conversations about, you know, what will happen to Ryder as we get older and, you know, what the plans for that may be. And so Noah has it in his head that, you know, he'll always take care of Ryder, even though, like, you know, that's not going to be an expectation at all. Right. But. Right. So then as far as school for Ryder, um, what does it look like for him? Does he um, go to a normal school day? Yeah, so he is pretty much in a special ed class um, all day. Um, they And he's in first grade. Um, last year when he was in kindergarten, they definitely tried to integrate him um, in, the, in his normal classroom. And then just if he if it got to be too much for him, then they would leave and go to the special ed room. This year, this year has been very rough. Um, he has had, um, probably starting around October, he started having a lot of violent behaviors and we couldn't really figure out why um, he would hit and kick and bite. 
they pretty much had to pull him out of the normal classroom and have him in his special ed room pretty much all day. They would try to take him to PE. It's getting better now. Um, and they try to take him to PE more often now that he, his behaviors getting a little bit more under control. We've been trying different medications for him, hoping we found the right combination, but. Well, it's hard to know. Um, yeah, public my time teachers. will tell. Yeah, special ed teachers, I know they do their absolute best um, to assist students, but yeah, it can be so, it can be so hard to know what the right combination is. Yeah. So when you, when you send them to school, like, do you, especially at the beginning when you sent him to school, did you have any internal conflicts? What did you, what did you feel like? What were you thinking? Pretty, I mean, we had been involved with, you know, the school with him for quite a while. So I wasn't really necessarily nervous, I guess. I mean, I was, but I wasn't. I knew that he was in good hands. Um, we trusted the people that he was with. And I guess a little part of me too felt relieved because I guess up until he went to school, you know, I never had a break from autism. If I was home, I lived in autism and it's not, I mean, I still do when he's at school, but I don't know. I don't, sometimes I don't feel that weight on me, I guess. Yeah. Um, Cause it's heavy. I'm, I'm sure it's heavy every day. Oh yeah. <laughs> Especially since my husband's on night shift, you know, trying to keep him quiet or, you know, happy is yeah. a little difficult, but so Michael can get some sleep. But again, it's just one of those things you just do it and life goes on. And You do it to the best of your ability every day. And I'm certain that that gets, like you said, exhausting. So then what, what does a normal day in your life look like? Well, so I work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and all 12 hour shifts. So <clears throat> depending on my husband's schedule, I will have to get the kids up around 5.45 to get them out to my in-laws house where they will get on the bus for the day. And then obviously they'll go to school. And then again, depending on my husband's schedule, I will have to pick them up when I get off. So I'll pick them up around 7.30 or so. So on the days that I work, unfortunately, I feel like it's just a race against time, just trying to get either everyone out the door or everyone into bed. But on my days off, which are Monday and Friday, it looks a little different now in, during COVID. Pre-COVID, um, it would be, you know, getting them to school and then at some point having to drive to Pekin to go pick up Ryder and take him to speech. Um, and that would be both Monday and Friday. So then how did COVID um, affect Ryder's, you know, schedule and the normalcy of that? How, how did that look for you guys? Right now, we're not doing um, our speech just because it was in the hospital. And so Ryder has had a lot of health problems. Um, and so it made me nervous to take him to a hospital to have speech during COVID. Mm -hmm. um, but now that that's easing up, I think probably this summer we'll start that back up again um, and kind of eat. And that way we can kind of turn 
transition from school five days a week and then still having some sort of responsibility during the summer. Because I think it's hard for him to go from all to nothing and then be expected in August to start it all back up again. And so I feel like there needs to be some sort of structure over the summer. But but yeah, we it was a hard decision to come to to stop that speech therapy during COVID. But again, since he when he was an infant, he had horrible health problems. And so we just couldn't bring ourselves to take that risk, I guess. Did you notice during, you know, the lockdown of everything, did you notice any any different behaviors? Not really, no. Okay. Um, he he rolls with the punches pretty well. Um, it didn't really throw him off that much. I mean, he loved being right. home. But For sure, right? Yeah. Yeah, right. Can you describe um, some triggers for him then? he He's a very large child. And so he he is very overweight for his age. And so he constantly wants to eat. He has a um, chromosome deletion syndrome. And one of the symptoms of that is um, obesity. And so it's, I mean, it's expected that he's going to be overweight, but he's pretty much always wanting to eat when he's home. You know, if he's distracted or doing something he likes, like he can go all day without eating because he's not thinking about it. But when we're stuck in the house, um, he constantly wants to eat. Um, Like just today, honestly, most of my weekends are spent in the kitchen trying to keep him out of food. And when I deny him food, it's usually a meltdown. Um, Probably a couple months ago, I guess it's been, you know, I told him no, you know, no more food. And he went to his room and kicked some holes in the wall. And that was before he was put on medication. And since then, that has, that hasn't been as bad, but he still gets very angry when he's denied food. Um, and, and so I spend a lot of time just trying to distract him otherwise. So then so the then meltdown doesn't become so extreme. I mean, let's say that he has escalated. How do you combat that and in, into calming him down? How long does it take for him to relax? Um, I would say five to 10 minutes. Um, and, you know, it's something I've talked about with um, his associates at school, too that once he has reached a point where he's going to have a meltdown, there's really no stopping it. Um, unless of course you're going to give in to what he's, he wants, but that that's not helpful. So it's just a constant fit of screaming and kicking and you literally kind of have to sit there and watch it. And then afterwards when it's over, like he instantly starts crying and he hugs you and almost remorseful about it is remorse something that and because i you need to educate me a little bit erica Mm -hmm. um is remorse something that is often seen in children with autism they usually don't show a lot of emotions that would i guess recognize the other person's feelings um writer actually does a good job like if he sees somebody crying he'll be 
he'll go up to them and ask if they're okay. So that's helpful. But yeah, with autism, normally they're, they're not really in tune. They don't understand feelings of other people. Are there certain points of like the day, like certain times of the day, month or year, or that, that seem to be like pose fits of frustration for him? No, not really. Just just the denial of things that he desires, right? Yep. yep. Okay. Um, so you, that yeah, sounds like you can really pinpoint those things. Um, so what are some things that he loves? Like what is most important to him? Like what does he enjoy doing? He loves his cartoons. He loves swimming. He could be in the water all day. Absolutely all day. Um, we go camping a lot in the summer and he loves that. Um if my parents have a camper and he just loves being in it. I don't. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So then I know that you guys just recently went to Walt Disney world, right? We did. Yes. How was it? Can you talk about that? How, how was it for everyone? It was great. I mean, it was exhausting, but I think even with neurotypical kids, it's exhausting as well. He did far better than we expected. Um, I mean, just a few short tantrums. He's not great at waiting, but, you know, with such long lines, he did great. Good. Um, yeah, he loved it. He still talks about it. Um, he wants to look at pictures on my phone of when we went. Well, yeah. I mean, it's a wonderful, gosh, he's going to remember that forever. Mm-hmm. You know what? Yeah, that's going to be awesome. As far as doing those special events or like those occasions or, you know, um, vacations, do you do anything different than you, you know, that you wouldn't do if you didn't have a child with autism and have to think about, you know, de-escalation and all that stuff, um, Uh, you know, trying to take care of him? Yeah. So, I mean, we pretty much constantly have to plan for worst case scenario. Um, you know, whenever we look about going on a trip, you know, I really have to search the hotel. Like, it can't have a sliding glass door. Um, you, like, we try to, um, we have to barricade the doors because he he likes to run off. He is definitely an elopement risk. And so, yeah, every, every night we have to barricade the doors with whatever we can find in the hotel um, because he he will try to escape and he will definitely run off. Um, we, even though we don't like to, we have to constantly have a lot of snacks in case we see a meltdown coming, we can give him a preferred snack and hopefully kind of minimize what could be coming essentially. So, and that's good to know. Cause I feel like these are lots of things that unless you're living this life, you, you aren't aware of, you know, just the day to day or, you know, going on trips and planning these special, special, um, diversions or, um, you know, making sure that the door is locked and barricaded. Those are things that, you know, people don't think about unless they're living that reality. Thinking about that, um, like worries as a parent, can you discuss the worries that you felt for your sons socially, academically, or mentally? Referencing all three of them, you know, when thinking about uh, raising boys. Um, yeah, I mean, I we constantly worry about Ryder. And we spend a lot of time worrying about his future and maybe not so much the present. 
probably like we should. Um, we constantly try to envision what his life is going to look like and, and which isn't necessarily helpful. And you can imagine it several different ways. Like my husband, we, we have a farm and he raises a lot of hogs and we anticipate that Ryder will help him when he gets older, you know, cause we don't, you know, you don't want to put a limit, a limitation on what your child can do, but he Ryder enjoys being at the farm. And so we can foresee that he will help Michael with, with the farm when he gets older. Does it worry you to think about him after you and Michael are gone? Yeah. I mean, we worry about it a lot. Um, and so the best we can, we try to take care of ourselves. So we hopefully live to a very long age, but I mean, I do anticipate that our other boys will step up and help out. Um, but it is hard and it, it is scary just not knowing what that looks like or what stress that may put on our other boys. And I mean, I, I try the best that I can to not let that stress, um, you know, fade onto my children that we go through. But I mean, like I said, I think my oldest does, does feel it. And I feel like he takes on more responsibility than he should. And I, I would foresee them taking care of Ryder after, after we're gone. The, I mean, Michael and I talk about now, I mean, we fully anticipate that Ryder will live with us forever. Um, we hope to be building a house in the near future that will kind of accommodate, you know, like maybe putting a, a room above the garage so that if he's able to live somewhat independently, like he could live there or um, trying to figure out different ways to accommodate him, essentially. Yeah. Moving to you um, and your needs. So as a mother of a child with high needs, you know, what, what do you do in order to preserve yourself? Um, I mean, as much as I try to make time for myself, I mean, I don't, to be honest. I, it's one of those things, like, I know I should, but, you know, it's also one of those things where it's like, I can't just hire a babysitter, you know? And my parents help out a ton, a lot. And so I, I don't know, I try to only ask for help if we absolutely need it. And so I am terrible at making time for myself or doing things for myself. Honestly, if I do do something for myself, it's because one of my friends made me. <laughs> like last year, um, one of my good friends basically just said, hey, I'm making an appointment to have some massages and you're going. Um, other than that, like I am terrible at making time for myself. Um, you know, it's kind of the mom guilt thing too. Like you just feel mm -hmm. so guilty mm -hmm. leaving your kids and I don't know. I, I, it's one of those things like I hope to get better at, but definitely still a struggle. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, like you said, you can't just hire a babysitter and that's, that's another, you know, hidden mm -hmm. element that things 
you know, people, unless they're experiencing it, don't think about that. I, I should have asked you for like a list of things that you wish that people knew about, you know, families um, with children who have autism, you know, are there things that you wish like people knew? Like, like it would be it, like, it would be so helpful if people knew this thing. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, everyone with autism is so different. Um, I think that's probably a takeaway. Um, but really that like, it's okay to ask questions. You're not going to offend me. You're not, it takes a lot to hurt my feelings, like a lot. Um, so, you know, when people ask questions, you know, that's, I think they're afraid to ask questions basically because they don't know how to word it. They don't know what could be offensive and whatnot. Um, because it's just not a world that they live in. And so it's so unfamiliar and, um, and again, you know, Michael and I didn't really know a whole lot about autism until we were living it. And so in a way prior to writer, I feel like in my head, I almost associated autism with, you know, almost being like mentally retarded. Um, and so I think that's what I hope that people know that it's completely different. Um, they all have their different capabilities and abilities and, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, yeah. I think asking questions is going to be the biggest thing that I wish that they knew. To ask questions and not be scared of, you know, being offensive. Mm-hmm. What have you learned about yourself? I'm much more resilient than <laughs> than I imagined that it could be. Um, but, you know, with writer too, autism definitely isn't the worst thing. He's put us through. He's put us through so much when he was an infant that, you know, autism really isn't anything for us. It's you know, we're glad that he's alive and well. And, um, and we try to be grateful of that on hard days. Um, it's always tr trying to find the silver lining and um, keeping that in perspective. So then Erica, what would your encouragement be for moms of children with autism or, you know, having, or they, maybe they suspect their child has autism. What, what would your encouragement be? Just to start now. I mean, I had the suspicion for a while um, before I acted on it, I, I feel like, and I feel like moms just know. And so go with your intuition and um, definitely, um, you know, get the ball rolling. Um, but I also hope that they know that, it's, you know, they're not alone. When Ryder was diagnosed, I think that was the hardest thing. Like I felt like I was so alone and nobody knew what I was going through. And um, if the first month or two after his diagnosis was just a blur between all of the sleepless nights and crying and, you know, you kind of go through a period of grief when your child is diagnosed with something like that. And it's kind of hard to work through it and, recognize that you're going through grief as dumb as it sounds you feel guilty about your grieving process because you have you know a child that's alive and well 
that you're grieving. You know, you grieve the life that you thought that you would have and you're grieving how you thought that their life would be. Um, And then, you know, once that grief is over, life can finally kind of move on. But, you know, it definitely kicks back up every now and then. Normally, you least expect it, and that's okay. But I think the main point is just to not feel guilty about how you're feeling. Yeah, and it'll come, it'll ebb and flow, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Like I said, you know, writer's autism definitely is not the worst thing. You know, when he was born, we almost lost him. And then when he was six months old, we almost lost him again. And so on the hard days, you just think about that, about how grateful you are that he's here and he's happy and he's thriving and well that kind of has to be your focus to get through the day sometimes my last question for you erica would be what would your encouragement be for the support people of moms who have children with autism it's a lot of words i just threw at you yeah no so i mean you know, it's going to be hard. I mean, basically just sit in the dark with them until they can start functioning. And um, and then just, you know, understand that they are exhausted. And, you know, luckily for me, I have good friends that understand that and they know that I'm kind of it's isolating. You know, I can't just load the kids up in the car and go somewhere. I mean, it is a well thought out choreographed event. Um, and so, you know, they, you know, they try to plan things or, you know, my friend that got me out of the house or just to have friends that understand that it's hard. You know, we have friends that invite us down to their lake house and they you know they understand that we're we're a package deal essentially so if you put up with us you have to you know you're also welcoming autism in your home and whatever that may entail in the beginning no there's no right words to say I mean there are no words to say you know your friend just you know their world got turned upside down so just being there and understanding that you know how isolated they are and it's probably the biggest thing, just, yeah. Holding that space with with people, with, with your people that are supportive. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad that you guys have that support, Erica. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, following you on Facebook, um, I, I was just very, I was always very encouraged and inspired by you as a mom. And um, so I'm, I'm so thankful that you decided to agree to an interview. Mm-hmm. I'm, Yes. Yeah. No, thanks for having me. Yeah. I was shocked when you, I guess, reached out to me after I posted about, you know, what did I post actually? You had posted writer singing happy birthday to you and I might have wept. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) I may or may not have just wept. Yes. Yeah. I mean, when those milestones come late, it just, and then they happen, you know, it's so much more meaningful. You know, I remember for years thinking that writer, you know, I'll never get to hear my son's voice. And then, you know, he sings happy birthday and it just, 
It was so perfect and precious. Yeah, he is. Especially after the week that you had had. I know that your post had mentioned how difficult of a week it was. And so, yeah, that was, Mm -hmm. it was, it was probably the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Yeah. Well, his motive too was probably the birthday cake, you know, (laughs) associates birthdays with cake. And so I'm sure he expected a cake out of the deal, but (laughs) But we'll take it. Yeah. It was, it was beautiful. Yeah. It's definitely a great kid that we, you know, you just, you don't realize that sometimes you focus so much on the heart that you don't realize, you know, that they're making you a better person. And it's a gift. It's a beautiful gift. You know, all of these things that happen to us and we, I mean, our, our, when I say to us, I mean, our situation, our things happen in our lives and it makes us kind of feel out of control, but I'm just learning through these these interviews that all of these things that happen are just gifts in mm-hmm. different packages. Yes. Um, yeah, he is definitely definitely our miracle child for sure. And so <laughs> we just again we try to focus not so much on the hard, but just so grateful that he's here and he's alive and well and So Erica, thank you so much for being here. I so appreciate it. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. You guys, thank you for listening. This has been Erica Siren. We will catch you next time on The Bee Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of The Bee Podcast. Make certain to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. Screenshot this episode and share to your social media to bring awareness to this project. Share and join our community on Facebook. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next time for more inspiring stories told by real women. Wishing you peace and love. I'm Cami Milliken, and this has been The Bee Podcast.